are you really ready to make the jump to an EV after a lifetime of internal combustion? I get it that philosophically you might be gagging for it and totally good to go, but will the operational practicalities of EV ownership actually transport you to automotive hell? In other words, this report is a sanity check before you dump the big bucks. I'm Joe Logan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only. Website. Card. Now, there's been an unprecedented surge in inquiry for EVs and plug-in hybrids because of recent changes to the federal government's fringe benefits tax legislation. And what this basically means is if you're eligible for a novated lease, which is also called salary sacrifice, and if you can find the right EV or plug-in hybrid for you, and provided that vehicle is below the luxury car tax threshold for green cars currently $84,916 in the 2022-2023 financial year, then you stand to make a substantial saving because you won't pay fringe benefits tax on that car. If you go for a conventional car, and if that car costs 50 grand, let's say, then you will pay fringe benefits tax. And what this means is the green car is likely to cost you a lot less in terms of the impact on your take-home pay compared with the impact on your take-home pay of a notionally cheaper conventional car. So that is absolutely something to think about. I've put a guide to Novated Leasing on my website if you just want to know the basics. And card up there, dude, if you want to have a look at that, because I don't want to repeat myself ad nauseum and detain you with that if you already know. But click the card if you'd like to know more on that, and I'll wait, and we'll get in now to exactly whether or not this EV or plug-in hybrid is right for you. Let me assure you at the outset that I am absolutely not anti-EV, quite the opposite. I drove one for a year, and I can see some real benefits. I'll give you just two, right? Clean air for our cities. This is huge because pollution is a major premature killer of our population. Our cities are our most polluted places. More people live in the city than in any other place in the country. So we need to do something about the quality of the air in our cities. And EVs are a fantastic way to reduce tailpipe emissions to zero. So yay for that. The other thing is national energy security, because we have the capacity onshore to generate, in practice, endless electricity. This has a huge impact on our national energy security. If there's some sort of conflict in the world that impacts the supply of oil, we are currently very vulnerable to that. But if we increase EV ownership, we'll be less vulnerable and more mobile and during times of geopolitical unrest. So two massive advantages off the bat right there. I drove an EV for a year. I really enjoyed it. I never once missed attending the filling station. You've got to be kidding. Even the two-for-one Kit Kat meal deal, no matter how provocatively it was offered from time to time, not enough to make me miss the petrol station. You've got to be kidding. So there's all of that. I'm just not an evangelist when it comes to this. EVs are merely a different kind of powertrain 
in the kinds of vehicles we already understand. So there's nothing magical about them. There's just they're right for some people and they're not right for others. And I want to find out if they're right for you, although not as much as you want to find out if they're right for you. So charging and operations are the two critical areas that I want to address. And there are some things there that you might not have considered adequately. And then there are some other operational factors we'll get to at the end. But charging is like this. Every EV comes with a standard charging box that plugs into a standard power point. And it's going to deliver about 2.3 kilowatts of power to the battery to recharge. Don't, if you don't get the physics, don't worry about the kilowatts. Just think about the number. It's 2.3 worth of power. And that means if you only drive 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 k's even every day, the standard charging box is going to be just fine. But if you come back home with the battery depleted, and if you plan on doing that often, then the standard charging situation is going to get outgunned because your battery is going to be 60, 70, 80 kilowatt hours, something like that. Let's say it's 70 and you're putting in about two using the standard box that comes with the car, the standard charging setup that comes with the car. It's going to take you about 30, 35 hours to recharge your EV. And if you do that often enough, it's not going to be sufficient. So you're going to have to come up with a better charging option than that. We'll get to that in just a minute, but that's something to consider. If you do short trips all the time and you're prepared to plug in to a standard power point, then an EV is going to work out just fine for you, provided you can get off the street with your car. See, if you don't have off-street parking, the council is going to get very cranky with you if you drape an extension cord over the footpath or through the trees and into your car, that's going to be frowned upon. It's also, it, apart from being a tripping hazard, it's kind of dangerous if there's a heavy dew overnight or if it rains. And you're going to have to make sure that the extension cord is protected by a safety switch, core balance relay, residual current device, whatever you want to call it. You'll need that kind of protection. You should have that for every circuit in the house. But anyway, you're going to need to cross that bridge as well. If you can't get off the street, then you're going to have to think about alternative charging setups like maybe you can convince the boss if there's some sort of push on to get EVs into the fleet at work, then you might be able to charge up at work. Otherwise, you'll have to find a public charger. And I'd have to say, public charging infrastructure in Australia currently sucks. Like take Mossman, for example. It's one of Sydney's most affluent suburbs. It's got three public chargers. There's a current purge on by the council over all of the extension cords that are across footpaths. This is a real-world example of what's happening now. None of our capital cities in Australia is like London, for example, where they have public chargers deployed all over the shop. I think they've got six or 7,000 of them by now, and they're just on power poles. So wherever you can park where there's a power pole, you can charge your EV. I'd suggest it's going to be five or ten years until we can enjoy the same kind of benefits, public charging, whatever, in Australia. It's a pilot program here and there at best in Australia. So that's something to consider. Now, if you live in a unit, things could be even more complex because even if you've got one or two parking bays or garages, whatever, in your unit, 
you may not have power. I mean, you might have a light fitting. You might even have a PowerPoint. But let's say you don't have a PowerPoint in your parking bay for your unit. Getting power to run your charger is going to be a big deal because it'll have to be metered to your unit and your unit and your parking might be a long way from each other and the meter board. So that could be an expensive exercise, getting a PowerPoint metered to your unit. And if you want a wall box that will deliver, say, three times the amount of power, which is easy enough to get for a house, then that could be a problem as well because the unit might not be, or the block of units, might not have been designed at any stage for the additional amount of electricity that all the residents might need if they all want a wall charger in their parking bays. Because let's talk about wall boxes. I've got one, it's just out there. It works just fine. Installation wasn't too hard. It's in a house. I've got single phase power. You probably don't need three phase power because the benefit, it's expensive to get and the benefits aren't there. What they had to do is they had to run a dirty big fat piece of 32 amp cable all the way under the floor and across to the other side of the house and then they had just had to mount the wall box. 32 amps is about seven and a bit kilowatts which is about three times the amount of power you can get out of a standard 10 amp power point and what this means is if you come home and your battery is completely flat and you just get there sucking on a dry tank of electrons, provided you can get the cord into that socket, you can sleep on it and you'll be good to go first thing in the morning. This is the difference between a wall box and the charger that comes with the car. It's probably going to cost you two or three grand for a wall box, but installation could be complex because they might have to cut up 20 metres of concrete and then re-concrete, depending on the complexity of installation at your house. If you want to put 20 or 30 wall boxes into a block of units, that's 20 or 30 times 7 kilowatts more than the whole block was ever designed to draw. So that's going to require a major electrical upgrade from the street to those wall boxes because we're talking 200 kilowatts more electrical supply. And if you live in a block of units surrounded by other blocks of units, we could be talking about 200 kilowatts times all the blocks of units in your street. And it doesn't take too long before we're talking about megawatts of additional electrical energy for unit dwellers and I'd suggest that people in apartments and units are likely to be on the front foot when it comes to EV adoption particularly in affluent parts of all of our capital cities so there's all of those things to consider okay I'm going to reiterate that if you get a wall box at your house and it's supplying 32 amps of single phase electricity for about seven kilowatts generally even with the best EVs you can buy from an char onboard charging capability perspective, they can really only accept 11 kilowatts and you can only get that from three phase. So we're only talking about 50 or 60% more charging capacity if you shoulder the incredible cost of uh, installing three phase power to your home. So in general, single phase 32 amp charging on a wall box is going to be fine. Now, let's move to operations, okay, because EVs are particularly good 
at short city type trips. If you go to the shops, the station, the office and back, whatever, dropping the kids off, mum's taxi, fantastic. But when you go regional, the charging proposition gets much more complex. And I guess if you do the same regional trip all the time, let's say, for shits and giggles, that you live in Sydney and you make a monthly trip to Canberra. And let's say you're not confident that your EV will get the full way to Canberra. That's easy because you can stop in Goulburn. There are three charges in Goulburn currently, fast charges. So you can just stop, get a coffee, stretch your legs for half an hour, you'll get to Canberra. Easy. But if you've got the kind of life where you're travelling to this place in regional wherever and then that place in regional wherever and then this place in regional wherever, then that's complex. It requires a complex amount of planning, logistical planning, just to recharge your vehicle. You're going to need charges that are available and operational. They need to be both things. So if the charger is connected to a business and that business is closed from close of business Friday until start of business Monday and you happen to lob Saturday morning, then that's going to get old, isn't it? So there's a whole bunch of complexity in planning for random regional trips. And in that situation, a plug-in hybrid might be much better because a plug-in hybrid is the kind of vehicle that can be operated as if it's an EV for your short running around home. But then if you need to do that random regional driving once a month, once a week, whatever, then you can just operate it on petrol and it'll be just fine. Okay, so that will reduce all of that stress that you might experience with your regional recharging planning to a big fat zero. And the other thing that can happen to you, and I've had this happen to me and it's pretty memorable, is that you can get to a location and a charger might not be operational. It might be reported as operational and it might be fully brown bread, dude. And then what you'll find is that you can't get to another charger right? Because you're strung out in terms of remaining battery capacity such that your range is inadequate to get you to other locations. And when that happens to you, you've got to find a motel and you've got to run out an extension cord and use the standard charger and, you know, just listen for the banjo or whatever until you can at least make it to the next charger. And this kind of thing is frustrating if you're on a timetable. I have to say. And the other thing is that electric vehicle charges are not that reliable. In fact, in the United States, in California, which has probably the highest uptake of EVs in all of America, what they found was that at any one time in Los Angeles, 30% of all electric vehicle charges are down for maintenance. So they're either waiting on a technician or waiting on parts. And that is not the level of reliability that you would want your regional mobility to depend upon. It's going to take a long time until we will have a reliable recharging solution across even the most heavily trafficked parts of regional Australia. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is the limit, because there's the financial limit, the luxury car tax threshold limit. It's $84,916 for green cars in the 2022-23 year. And it 
really depends on the precise car that you buy because you can look at a car online and it could be $84,000 but then when you go through the ordering process, the premium paint, the 20 inch wheels, the whatever, the price increases incrementally with each one of those boxes that you tick and you might find yourself in a position where the vehicle you want is just this much higher than the threshold, in which case you will blow all of the benefit if you proceed. So what I'd suggest is that you should wait. You should wait about five months. It's the start of March now in 2023 when I'm recording this video. So April, May, June, July. If you wait four months, the taxation office will index the threshold because the threshold is indexed every year to keep pace with inflation such that the value of the luxury car tax threshold maintains its neutral buoyancy despite the impact of inflation which is to reduce the value of the currency okay so what that means is that on the 1st of July the threshold's going to jump and it's probably going to jump to early 90s it jumped by about 5 grand going from the previous financial year to the current financial year. So it's probably going to jump six or seven because in, in the transition to the next financial year because inflation is getting higher and higher. So if you're close but above the threshold and you really want a particular car, then just wait until the 1st of July because the threshold will flip. Now, Emerging brands, that's something you should consider as well because we've got a bunch of brands that nobody's ever heard of before, such as Cupra, BYD and Polestar. And they all make grandiose claims about who they are and why their vehicles are impossibly excellent for you. And on my world, that's all marketing fluff. And my advice to people buying a vehicle from an emerging brand irrespective of the powertrain, combustion, plug-in hybrid, electric vehicle, doesn't matter. Because what really matters to you is the amount of support you will get from that car maker if something goes wrong. And we just don't know at this point about brands like that. So the options are you can sign up and become a lab rat in a mad experiment being run by a car maker, right, or you can wait and see how the other lab rats go. And I'd suggest that the prudent course of action, the one that I recommend, is see how the lab rats go. Give it a couple of years and see what the support from Cupra, BYD, Polestar, etc. really is. And if you can't wait, buy an electric car from a more established brand. Because even though the electric technology might be new, the brand has an established track record of how it relates to its customers, how well it supports its customers, how well it complies with Australian consumer law. You can rely on that not to change, even if the technology from them is emerging. Two more things before you make this big jump in powertrain technology. The first thing I noticed, apart from how smooth and quiet it was when I drove an EV, it's really easy to speed because normally when you drive a combustion car, there's a bunch of noise and vibration that is associated with accelerating to a particular speed. That's gone in electric cars, right? You look down at the speedo, you go, <laughs> my license is hanging by a thread here, better slow down. That's a real risk. The other thing is eco-tyres, because 
manufacturers are all in this race and the race is to deliver the maximum range from that EV or this EV or whatever. And they do it by fitting eco-tyres because eco-tyres have less rolling resistance, therefore they consume less battery just getting the car rolling across the bitumen. The downside of eco-tyres is that they don't grip the road quite as well as conventional tyres. And what I noticed when I drove that Kona Electric for a year is that the eco-tyres are a bit skittish and I enjoy tipping the car in from time to time. So I changed them from eco-tyres to performance tyres, specifically in this case a Michelin Pilot Sport 4Ss, and it changed the character of the car. I... I kind of enjoyed driving it before I changed the tyres, but after I changed the tyres, it was a completely different driving experience, which I really enjoyed. So there's that. And the other thing to consider is that if you enjoy heavy towing or off-road adventuring or outback touring recreationally, then there's currently no option for that among plug-in hybrids or, in particular, electric vehicles. In fact, when you tow something with an electric car the range just plummets. That's just how it is. The Kia uh, EV6 is a clone of the Hyundai Ioniq 5, essentially, and the Ioniq 5 has a tow capacity of 1,600 kilos. But I suspect if you did stick 1,600 kilos behind one, the range would just plummet. And ditto the EV6 if they do a towing capacity for that. I haven't checked. But for towing and adventuring, there's no option for that. So perhaps one option there is to buy a towing and adventuring vehicle and then rely on an EV as the second vehicle to do your principal little running around, to be mum's taxi, whatever. And then when you want to go on your annual or biannual adventure to the bush, you will have, I don't know, dual cab use or something of that nature. Anyway, I hope this video has been helpful to you if you're two-thirds of the way down off the fence with the money in hand about to go EVs are us. If you pass the sanity check, I can tell you that EV ownership is satisfying, rewarding, even fun, okay, provided it's right for you. So you really have to investigate those things like the nature of your domestic situation and whether or not you can get a good charging solution and then the operational requirements as well like how often are you going to visit the boonies and how's that going to work out for you anyway i hope this helps thanks for watching